welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, welcome. I'm Micah, by the way, if we don't know each other, uh, one of the pastors here at Awaken, and I'm glad that you're here. Uh, if you would, please turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the pews in front of you. And uh, we will be reading from chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So actually, I'm going to ask you to stand just briefly for a moment for the reading of the text, and then we'll dive right in. Paul writes this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Pray with me if you would. God, we thank you for this morning and the gift that it is for the sunshine, uh, for the new fallen snow. Um, God, I'm, I'm grateful for your word, uh, which is Jesus resurrected and uh, wandering about, bringing resurrection wherever he goes. We thank you for the written word. Uh, which we have as a gift, as a, uh, a means by which you continue to reveal yourself through. And so we're grateful for it. And for the Holy Spirit and the, uh, the work that it does to take these words and make them come alive in us. And so, God, I pray that that would be true um, for this community and for those all around the world who are meeting in your name. That by your Spirit, you would take the words of your text and... Um, and make them come alive in us, that they wouldn't just be words on a page, but that they would, be, uh, they would become a part of who we are and how we love and how we um, show up in the world. So it's to that end that we pray. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. So welcome to Awaken. Um, and the first Sunday of Lent, if you didn't know, I don't know if you grew up in the church uh, that celebrated the calendar or in a church that celebrated the calendar, but... Uh, this is Lent, and the first Sunday in it. The Lent is traditionally the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. Uh, so 40, if you, if you know anything in the scriptures, is a, a number that means a lot. Often when 40 arrives or shows up, something is being born. Something is dying, and something is being born. Something is being let go, and something is being received. And so Lent is then this, uh, this period of preparation and waiting. For the early Christians, actually, it was... Uh, it was fascinating for, for those new believers and those coming into the community, Lent was a period of preparation. And so they would actually like um, gather the, the new believers in a, in a community and it was sort of a special walk that they would uh, live into uh, of, of preparation for Resurrection Sunday, which was a baptismal celebration in the earliest church. I don't know if you knew that. So Easter Sunday was a celebration of the new life that had happened and the new life that was happening. So these new, new believers in Jesus would essentially, you know, in, in, uh, in idea, take off something that was old or put to death something that was old, this old way of being, these old clothes, and they would actually be given a new set of clothes, a sort of white gown to, to depict what, uh, what was happening in their lives. So it was a, the shedding of a skin or the shedding of layers and the ways of being and relating that were not of Christ. And, the, and to receive and expose the true sense of who we are, the true self, the true body, the true human, the new way of being. So this is Lent. Welcome to it. Uh, I don't know if you're not doing something or you're doing something during Lent, but um, I just want to say... Uh, like blessings on that journey for you in whatever Lent brings this year. Uh, 
every year it's a, well, I, I do the same thing every, well, the last few years, I say every, as if I've been doing it my whole life, but that would mean I drank at a very young age. I give up alcohol during lunch, sorry. You all are kind of like, what is going on here? Um, so, whatever it is for you, um, good luck. <laughs> and that's why we do two services at Awaken. That would have been cleaner second hour, I guarantee you. But that leads us to our study this morning, does it not? Praise the Lord. Uh, we're wrapping up a study in Colossians, and um, this study we've entitled The Hope of Glory. We've looked at a number of different things, including what is the Bible and why is it important. Uh, we've looked at this Colossian hymn in verses 15 to 20, where Paul essentially says that the fullness of God is in Christ and, and dwells in Christ. Uh, we've looked at spiritual practices and why they matter or how they matter. Jenna talked about caring for the earth and that charge that we have as people who follow Jesus. And last week, we looked at the false self and the true self. And this week, we, we continue on where Paul says, Therefore, as God's dearly loved, clothe yourselves with this, that, and the other thing. Which, of course, should beg the question, what is therefore, therefore? Like, why is Paul saying therefore? Uh, is this a part of a larger conversation? And of course, the answer is yes. Paul has, in fact, invited them to take off something in the previous chapter, or the previous verses which we looked at last week, and he's telling him to put something on in this section, in verses 12 to 14. And Paul uses this metaphor of the old self, clothed in certain things, and now sort of disrobing, taking those clothes off and putting on a new set of clothes, or a new way of being. And this morning, I actually want to start with a story. Uh, I'm going to read a portion of a story, and I'm going to invite you to, uh, to imagine what you see or what you hear. So imagine in your mind's eye what you're hearing as I read a portion of this story. So maybe close your eyes if you would, take a couple of deep breaths, and try to imagine in your mind, try to see what I'm reading. Go on, said Edmund, with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. Now you may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. You can understand. Well, it came close to me. And it looked straight into my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight, but it wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? Well, I don't know, now that you mention it. I don't think it did, but, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, and so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there, there was always this moonlight over and around the lion, wherever it went. So at last, we came to the top of a mountain a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden. Trees and fruit and everything, and in the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, 
I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when suddenly I thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. And so I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. And so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were, they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again and this underskin peeled off beautifully and I stepped out of it and left it beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. I thought to myself, oh dear, how many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg and so I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, and so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab from a sore place, it hurts like the billy, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Oh, I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I had told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they have no muscle and they're not nearly as big as Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and he dressed me. He dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have, you've been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, said Eustace? I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, and there were still many days when he could be very tiresome. 
but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. You can open your eyes. This is the story of Eustace Scrub, one of the greatest lines in all of literature is the opening line of this book. There once was a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> this is C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and one of my two favorite passages in all of Narnia. Um, this process of shedding and becoming something new is just so beautiful. And I think, actually, is exactly what Paul is talking about in the passage that we read in Colossians. We studied last week, verses 1 to 11, and this week is 12 to 14. And he's in this whole conversation about taking something off and putting something else on. And so what I want to do this morning is just frame the whole sermon in terms of this passage and use some of the lines that Lewis uses because I think he just absolutely nails it. And so why repeat brilliance, you know, when it's already there? Um, so a couple of observations about Eustace the boy who turned into a dragon who was set free by the lion to become a boy again. There it is right there, friends. First is this. This is who we are and what we were meant for. Um, when you put these two lists, if you would throw those up there, Sean, um, on the left-hand side, you have last week's list from verses 1 to 11 that Paul says, take these things off. And he has two groups of five. The first five are at the top there, and the second five are at the bottom. And then on this side, you have what he's encouraging us to put on this week. And when you put those two lists up, to, up next to each other, I think it becomes really clear very quickly that these are mutually exclusive. These do not share the same assumptions. They do not begin from the same place, nor do they end in the same place. They are vastly different realities. They are two different kinds of human. The question we must ask ourselves that I would like to pose to you this morning is, which one leads to life? Like if you, if you stop for a second and you just back the truck all the way up, and you ask a fundamental question about what will bring life, what will bring fulfillment, what will bring joy, what will fill me up, what will make me live the life I was intended to live, is it this side or is it that side? On this side, arguably, this is, this, this is self-satisfaction. Each one of those actions or emotions addresses, uh, um, sees, answers me. It satisfies self. It's the expression of, with no regard for the other, whatever I'm experiencing. It's the satisfaction of, or the satisfying of, with no regard to the other, what I am desiring. While on the other hand, the other list could be characterized as others first. Every emotion that Paul insists we put on as the people of God is ultimately about putting someone else before yourself, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, they're all other-focused, whereas the list on the left is all about me. It props me up. It, 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 it answers a desire I have. It satisfies a craving I might have in some way, shape, or form. And so the question I think we need to ask is, which leads to life? Paul is not giving us a list of things to do. He's not giving us a list of things that we should check off so that we're more religious or more holy. I think Paul's actually in a very, very deep conversation about what does it mean to be human. And I would submit to you that Paul and I and others in Scripture are suggesting that this is what we were made for and what we were made from. 
We were made for love. We were made from love and for love. And love, by definition, is a relational action. It's a relational entity. The question for you this morning is, do you believe that? And this gets shrouded in all kinds of like religious language, and, and, and it gets used in all kinds of weird, bizarre ways. I've been a part of those sermons. I've been a part of those churches. And I just want to like back up the truck a little and say, just fundamentally, which one of these brings life? Even if you don't buy the Jesus bit, does this or this? And maybe you disagree with me. I'm, I'm suggesting that the right side leads to life. And maybe you say, no, actually, I'm going, I'm going far left. Hard pass, I'm swipe left on this one, right? I would just, I, I want to I pause and say, find some people who are at the end of their life and ask them this question. Find some people who have lived long lives and ask them, which one of these is worth it? To satisfy self first at the cost of others, or to satisfy and be a part of others first, even at the cost to self. That sounds crazy, I know. But that's the mystery of the gospel. That's the wisdom of the scriptures. That's the way of Jesus. We were made from love and for love. And when we don't participate in it, or we choose self first at the expense of others, Paul says it's a disaster. So take those clothes off. That's a dragon. That's not who you are. Become who you are. A child of God. Made in the image of, made from love and for love. Secondly, while you choose to lie down, it is only the Christ who can undress you. Now, I talk a lot at Awaken, and I'm all about like owning your faith and your faith being a part of a, 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 a decision that you make and you participating in it. We even say like we, we exist as a church to partner with God in the renewal of all things. So it's a very active thing that I'm asking us to do. And I think sometimes it's possible that what gets lost in that is that God is the first mover. This is Aquinas, early, early, early Christianity. God is the first mover. Said differently, there's only so much you can do. You can't work your way there. You can't earn it. You can't like pull up your own bootstraps enough times to get the job done. You can only lie down. And that's choice. You have freedom there. You have agency. This is free will, and I would, I would submit it, it, it. We have to keep it. It's not actually a game. We're not puppets. God's not controlling every aspect of every moment of every single day. God gives freedom. God gives choice because God is love, and love always requires choice. So you have choice in this. You can stand up. You can say, no, I will not lie down, but you cannot undress yourself. You cannot take it all off. You can't, and, and we try as we might, right? I love that. He's peeling and scales are falling off, and we do some things, and sometimes they work to a certain degree, but ultimately, to get to the heart of the matter, the first tear was so deep that I felt like it went to my heart, he says. You choose to lie down, but only the Christ can undress you. Try as Eustace might to shed the scales of this monstrous costume that he's been enslaved to and imprisoned in. He remains a dragon. And Aslan seems to stand and watch until he's invited to do what Eustace cannot. Because love is a choice. It always is. And God will not go where God is not invited. Parents in the room, you have a unique gift of learning this lesson the hard way. I don't know if you've had a moment where you've watched your kid just make a disaster of something and you've said, no, please do not do that. For the love of God, that choice is going to lead to death. 
And you can't do it for them. And so you watch. You watch them hurt themselves or you watch them hurt others. And you cannot go where you are not invited to go. A prophet is not known in their own country. Or their own home. (laughs) I I resonate when I read Jesus' prayer where he stands over Jerusalem and he weeps and he says, I longed to gather you in like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not be gathered. You choose to lie down. You choose to submit. You choose to say, I can't. Try as I may, I I look in the mirror and inevitably it's dragon. And I'm a child, so help. Third, I would say the cure has begun. I love this this line. And this is Lewis where he kind of becomes the narrator again. And he says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To, to be strictly accurate, he, became, or he began to be a different boy. Though he had relapses, there were still many days where he could become very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. What a line. There's this fancy theological term called inaugurated eschatology, which essentially just means already but not yet. That something has started, but it has not been fulfilled, or it hasn't been consummated, it hasn't been completed yet. Inaugurated eschatology, the cure has begun. Uh, We live in this space between the decisive moment of the cross and the resurrection, which is determinative. It sort of, it, it determines the telos, or where the story is going, that death doesn't win in the end, that evil is vanquished, that it, 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 it has to be accounted for. And yet, we, we, it, we're not all the way there yet. And so there's this struggle, amen, of our lives where we wrestle back and forth at times with who we want to be and what we know we were made for, but what we choose to do this, that, this day or that day. This old way of being, which is often self-gratification and aggrandizement. Paul writes in Romans, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. All the junior hires would say, Paul talks about (laughs) doo-doo. But the cure has begun. And so, to those around us, in our families... In community, we keep reminding each other. This is part of what the role of community is. We keep reminding each other that the cure has begun. That we are not dragons, but that we are children of God, made from love and for love. And we give each other, Paul says, give each other grace, forgive each other. Like, bear one another's burdens. One writer says, it would be utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. And then secondly, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one who Christ has already forgiven. I'm going to say that again. It would be utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of not being a dragon anymore, of being forgiven, to refuse to share that with someone else. And then secondly, it's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one who Christ himself has already forgiven. And so to the church, Paul says, to the little Colossian church, gang, when somebody looks like a dragon or starts acting like a dragon, gather around that person and say, you're not a dragon. You're a child of God. 
loved with a name and a purpose. That's not who you are. You've taken off old clothes to put on new clothes, so act like it. And then Paul ends with, and I will end with, the most important garment of any of these things that we can put on, compassion, humility, patience, long-suffering, of all the garments we can put on, Paul says, the most important one is love. And this one just baffles me, guys. This is so fascinating to me. Paul says it in multiple places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You could have the wisdom of all the angels and you could move mountains and do all these things, but if you have not love, you are a clanging gong. Jesus himself says it very simply. If you could boil it all down, the, teacher, the, 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 the wise man comes to the teacher and he says, if you could boil it all down, all the law and all the prophets, like what matters most? What does Jesus say? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Love. He's quoting from Leviticus for crying out loud. Leviticus says it. Yet we miss it. Somehow we get in, uh, uh, invited or, or confused into this game that we have to get all these things right, get all the theology in our heads, arrange all the furniture properly, and yet we still act like jerks, and we think that that's what God wants. As long as we get it right, as long as we say the right words, and I would just suggest to you, this is really simple in the scriptures. It is not hard. If you don't have love, you have nothing. So if you're out there and you're wondering about this or that or the other thing, some theological idea, take a deep breath. Actually, do this with me. Exhale. Start with love. Start with love. That's your job. Love. To reflect love, to give love, to offer love, to be love to your neighbor, to yourself, to your friends, your family, to those around you. That's your job. And then trust that there is a God in the universe who is big, really big, big enough to handle whatever thing you're not sure about right now. And in time, wisdom will come because the spirit of God is with you and the spirit is truth. The spirit is the spirit of truth. So as we trust that spirit, we have nothing to fear that it will lead us to truth because it is truth. That's what the scripture says. So we can trust that the spirit is leading and guiding and we can continue to submit ourselves. We continue to lie down and say, Christ, undress me, clothe me with you and you're gonna be fine. My point here is this. If we as the people of God do not lead with love in the world, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you believe. It is that clear. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Paul, Kyle, Paul calls it a pile of refuse. If there weren't kids in the room, I would use a different word. That's what he says. You have. If you don't have love. The prophet Isaiah says this. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. 
They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say? Have you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves? Have you not noticed God? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You argue too much. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is, this is God now. Is this the fast that I have chosen? Only, only a day for the people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head? Is this what you call a fast acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of the injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. If our following Jesus doesn't lead to this kind of being in the world, where love is the, is, is the output, then we have missed something. We have missed something that is central to the story. Paul ends the same way. He says, over all of these things, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Friends, a challenge to you this morning. Who are you and what are you made for? This is a question for you to think about, for you to consider. Who are you and what have you been made for? Why are you here? Is it to satisfy whatever desire you have? Like, are, are you the end of the goal? Are you the end of the game? Or is there something else happening here where actually, counterintuitively, you were made for relationship and for others? And you find freedom and joy and life insofar as you are for others. Just a question I, could, I would offer to you for your consideration. And this story is one that says you can, you can try as hard as you want to scrape off the scales and, and unless you lie down and let the Christ undress you and, 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 and rebirth you, right, to become what you already were and are, but are trapped in this dragon suit. And then when you do, when you are, what is your life to be about? Above everything else, Paul says love. So church, what does it mean for us to be people of love? Where you show up in your workplace and in your schools and in your families and in places where you may have disagreements with other people, what does it mean to be a person of love first? Not to be right first, but to be a person of love. To trust that God is up there, God is doing what God is doing, and that the Spirit of God is at work. I think that is good news. And I think Paul does as well, and invites us to it. So, there's your invitation this morning. Pray with me if you would. God, as we take a few moments to, um, to be still and to be quiet, even as the weight of this winter snow rests on the earth. I pray that the weight of truth and that which, is, uh, that which will last, that which is right and true about you and about us and about the world we live in, I pray that that God would remain. So as we take a few moments to be still, Holy Spirit, we trust you. We trust that you're the spirit of truth. And that as we entrust ourselves to you, that you change us, you, you mold us, you invite us to become the children that we are. To step out of the suits. To be reborn by your love and by your grace.
So do it again today. My friends, go with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace, my friends. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.